of anything I've ever looked at in my life, I would put Bitcoin as nearest inevitable as I could. Hello there from the United Kingdom. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the Mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell, and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today, listen, I've got a monster show. I've got Parker Lewis, Robert Breedluff, and Vijay Boyapati asking the perennial question, what is Bitcoin? But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up this week, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. Now, with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account and start earning on your Bitcoin. Now, I'm a customer. I have been for nearly a year now, and I've nearly made a whole Bitcoin in interest, which is very, very cool. Also, with BlockFi, using Bitcoin as collateral, you can take out a USD loan, and you can also fund your BlockFi account directly from your Bitcoin wallet. And with the BlockFi mobile app, you can now fully manage your account on the go. They have got some other amazing things coming later this year. The team is working on some huge things I can't wait to tell you about. But if you are interested in checking out BlockFi, I do recommend you do your own research. Then head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, we need to talk about Kraken, my favorite place for buying and selling Bitcoin. It is the only place I use for buying and selling Bitcoin. Now, why? Why do you do that, Pete? Well, they are consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange, and security is really, really important to me. They also have the best in class in customer service. So if you've got any issue, whatever it is, wherever you are, whoever you are, if you reach out to them, they're going to get that sorted for you. And if you want to start trading Bitcoin, then they have every tool you could possibly need. Whatever your level of experience, if you sign up at Kraken.com, it could not be easier to get going, to get started with trading Bitcoin. Also, they have this beautiful mobile-first app called Kraken Pro, which allows you to buy Bitcoin on the go. With their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken really has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com or download the app. It's available on the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. Okay, so on to the show today, and it's an insane lineup. Now, what is Bitcoin is sometimes the most difficult question to answer because for so many people, it's so many different things. And you can't always get a consistent response. I find it myself when somebody's like, well, Pete, what is this Bitcoin thing? And I'm like, well, it's this or it's that. It's a medium exchange. Well, it's also like a hedge against inflation. Like it can get quite complicated. Now, depending on who you are, you might just see Bitcoin as a speculative tool or a hedge against inflation. But there are people in the parts of the world that desperately need Bitcoin for its censorship and seizorship resistant properties. If you're in Caracas in Venezuela, your use case might be very different from someone in New York, which might be very different from someone in Belarus, which might be very different from someone in Bedford. So to discuss this question, I asked my three favorite Bitcoin writers to come on the show and dissect it. So if you don't know Parker Lewis, Robert Breedlove and Vijay Boyapati, then do check out the show notes and go read some of their stuff. Honestly, mind blowing stuff, especially go and read Vijay's bullish case for bitcoin we also made a show about that so you should check that out too we also get in some broader issues regarding money what it is where they feel like bitcoin is heading and what the road to hyper bitcoinization looks like so yes this is another monster episode i hope you enjoyed if you've got any questions or any feedback you can reach out to me my email address is hello at what bitcoin did.com also on my other show defiance that's it defiance.news the first two parts of my series about Ghislaine Maxwell is out. That's proven really popular. It's a really solid series so far. Part three will be out on Monday. Please do go and check that out. And outside of that, have a great weekend and I'll see you all next week. VJ Parker, Breedlove, how are you all?
Good. I'm doing well, Pete. Good to see you again. Yeah, doing well. Thanks for having me on and looking forward to catching up with both Robert and BJ as well. Good to be here with you guys. Thanks, Peter. Well, listen, thanks for coming on. Um, you're all people I obviously respect very well. I uh, appreciate all your work. You've all been on the show before. Listen, I wanted to cover what seems like a simple topic, but I also think it's quite a big topic because um, you, you know what I'm like. I always talk about my friends down the pub. And I often get stuck on the most simplest question about Bitcoin, like what it is. And I know it sounds crazy. It should be a really easy thing to explain. But actually, a lot of the conversations we get into about Bitcoin can go in multiple directions, multiple rabbit holes. I have actually, VJ been stealing one of your lines recently that it's gold with the magical properties of teleportation. But I kind of want to get into kind of what it is, what it really can be and what it, what it all means to us. So... Um, I think I think a good starting point is just to put you all on the spot. Again, we'll start with you, Vijay. And if, if you end up repeating what you said to Tom Woods, I, I don't mind. But kind of what is Bitcoin? Well, the simplest explanation I always give is that it's a it's an asset and it's scarce and it's it's like gold, but it's digital. So it has the added benefit that it can be transmitted digitally. So it's gold with teleportation built in. That's usually the first explanation I give and you know it's not a perfect explanation but I think it really covers the fundamental core of why Bitcoin is valuable. Parker yourself same question mate. So I think about probably at its at its simplest term or when I start I I tell people that that Bitcoin is money um, and that it today doesn't you know operate or behave like people are are used to interacting with their current form of money um, or what they've associated with money, but that from a, f- a first principles basis and what Bitcoin will be on a day-to-day basis, I, I believe it is today, but that it will increasingly have those properties that people associate money with today. Bitcoin will grow into that over time and it will be an evolution. And really one of my one of my favorite quotes and VJ is somebody who I, you know, kind of when I was distilling my own thoughts as, you know, it's probably like first safe, you know, first and second people being safe in VJ. But one of his great quotes was um, something along the lines of people deride Bitcoin because of its volatility as if something can go from nothing to an entirely stable form of money overnight. And so that there, there's a distinction between how we all kind of historically have thought about the role that money plays versus how kind of Bitcoin behaves on a day-to-day basis versus its properties. But really at that most simple thing, uh, point, it, it is money and it will kind of evolve into thinking about it uh, and behaving in ways that we associate money with today. It just will take time to do that. And Robert, you finally on that first question. Yeah, I think this is uh, the perennial question. Um, and Bitcoin is clearly a lot of different things to different people at different levels of analysis. So the, the it, it really is a, a rabbit hole. But I, if I have 30 seconds to describe Bitcoin to someone, I say simply that it is an insurance policy on the legacy financial system. So such that the more dollars they print, the more valuable that policy becomes. Because throughout history... We've seen repeatedly that fiat currencies sort of end in one common demise, which is hyperinflation or some other form of implicit default. And in that respect, I think Bitcoin is kind of a true barometer for the health of that financial system. And uh, an increase in its price is a higher likelihood of the collapse of the traditional system. So I say that in 30 seconds and tell people just to get some 
um, just in case something happens, right? Because people understand 2008, people understand the Great Depression, people know there's something wrong, even if they can't articulate what it is. And I try to just ex uh, explain and position Bitcoin as an insurance policy on that something wrong. See, that's really interesting, though, because we've had three quite varied responses there. You know, VJ, you've essentially talked about digital gold. Uh, um, Parker, you've talked about money, and I understand it's kind of the same thing, but I think people think about money slightly differently. They think about it as when they're shopping and they're buying things. And then, uh, Robert, you talked about the hedge. And again, the hedge is really important. I just had an interview go live today with Lynn Alden, um, where I don't know if it, any of you saw her article this week talking about, she's looking back at the last 100 years, and it looks likely that a, a devaluation event is going to happen over the next decade. And I'm with you, Robert. I often talk to my friends now about the fact that it is a hedge against, you know, in, uh, systemic issues within the monetary system. But back to you, Vijay, I did, in preparation, listen to an interview of yours with our mutual friend, Stefan Levera. And you talked about a lot of people misunderstand the term cash. You know, we talk about Bitcoin it could be money, it could be cash, but they misunderstand cash because they think it has to be a medium of exchange first. Do you want to talk about that point? Sure. I mean, I think the word cash, people sort of assume it means something that is very stable in value and you can go to your local baker and use it to buy some bread. But cash also means a bearer instrument, something that's valuable in and of itself. It's not an obligation where you go, you take the obligation to another party, a bank, for instance, and say, can I get the thing that's valuable? So an example of this is gold is a bearer instrument. If I give you a gold coin, you have the thing that's valuable. That's different to if I give you a certificate which says you can redeem this certificate for a gold coin. That is not a bearer instrument. And when I, you know, this controversy comes up because people point to the, the Satoshi's white paper and say peer-to-peer uh, -peer digital cash, and that means that he intended it to be exactly like the dollar and it should be um, low transaction fees and whatever. I take it to mean um, it's an electronic bearer instrument. It is something that is valuable in and of itself. When you have the Bitcoin, you have the thing that's valuable. So that's that's kind of how I think about cash. I, that's, that's the aspect or the meaning of cash that I think is most important when we're thinking about Bitcoin. Yeah, it's interesting you say about the white paper because I often think that it isn't the cash bit that is always misleading. I actually often think that the part that misleads people in the white paper is when it talks about e-commerce and the issues with e-commerce. And I think that's what people, a lot of people end up ended up thinking Bitcoin was for, for kind of online digital transactions and probably in their head then considered it should be of any size. Would you say that's a, like a, a fair observation? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, Satoshi, when you look at his writing, when you he wrote a lot of things. And and when anyone writes a lot of things, some of those things are going to contradict each other a little bit. That's just the, the nature of the game. It's hard to be um, consistent over a, a sort of a large body of writing, especially when it's like informal email and so forth. And the thing is, I, I think with Satoshi, he solved this really fundamental problem of computer science and he is a brilliant thing that he did, but I think people then assume that everything he wrote is correct. I don't necessarily think he had figured out all of the economics. He sometimes 
talked about Bitcoin in terms of gold and sometimes he talked about it in terms of commerce. But if you think about the rules that are encoded, uh, the consensus rules in Bitcoin, it's just it's not suitable for commerce until it sort of stabilizes in value because there's this huge opportunity cost of relinquishing it in trade until it's widely adopted. And, and when it becomes widely adopted, then its purchasing power is going to stabilize. It, it's not like Bitcoin can go to infinity. It goes to some level where most people on earth have some stake in Bitcoin. And at that point, it's going to stabilize and then it becomes suitable for commerce. And that, that's when you're going to start seeing people use it as a medium of exchange. Now, there, there are some counterexamples to this. There are cases where people use it in commerce because the alternative is far more costly or risky. So, for instance, buying drugs online, you're not going to use PayPal for that, right? So even though there's this opportunity cost, you're willing to pay the opportunity cost because you don't want to go to jail. And I, I think in the beginning, Bitcoin's usage was dominated by things like that. Uh, Silk Road was one of the early businesses. And, and so I think a lot of people, especially libertarians, and you know, I count myself a libertarian, a, a lot of libertarians saw that and thought, okay, this is uh, for commerce. It's obviously for commerce. Look, people are using it to buy drugs. But I think that was kind of jumping to a conclusion a little too quickly. Um, and it, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a good example of how things would play out with merchants in general. And I think if you look at merchant adoption, it's pretty, it's pretty disappointing. And this is even with the efforts of people who are going out evangelizing Bitcoin to merchants saying, this is great. This is better than a credit card. You know, Roger Ver, Ver spent years and years doing this. And he's still doing it with Bcash. And, and really, it's th th there's no uptick, there's no usage, because why would you adopt something like Bitcoin as a merchant when 99% of your customers don't have any? What is the benefit? What is the benefit to the mental cost you have to pay to figure it out and set up a new payment processing system? The benefit's pretty low. Um, so my view is that kind of stuff only happens when you know, 90% of your customers have savings in Bitcoin, then there's a huge incentive to accept Bitcoin and, and merchants will be jumping all over themselves to, uh, to set up payment processes which accept Bitcoin and figure out the Lightning Network and, and that sort of thing. Um, no, and it, it makes sense because, you know, there are people who are using Bitcoin day to day. I invoice in Bitcoin. I'm sure, Parker, there's certain things that are done with Bitcoin because we're in kind of like a part of a circular economy of this, which will expand as more people come into the system. Uh, but we also have the markets which Bitcoin suits. You talk about drugs and such. We have the dark markets. Those markets have built up and suited the trade for that. But what you're essentially talking about, there is no there is no need. There is no, the, the, the kind of cost benefit isn't there for kind of main street retail to have that right now. But that, that makes sense. And Parker, we, um, we did a long show about the nature of money. Um, for my beginner's guide to Bitcoin, I I can't remember if I told you, but like if you outside of the YouTube numbers, that was the biggest show of the whole beginner's guide of all nineteen episodes. It was Parker Lewis? 
I actually, I didn't know. You, you did tell me that it was popular. I didn't know that it was yeah. the, the most popular series, but I do think that part of that is because it goes, you know, into my initial question about what Bitcoin is, because my, my explanation, like the next layer down, I think gets to, to what VJ's was, which is most people, they don't even, they walk around and they never even think about why, why do all these people accept the dollar or the Euro, right? They, they've just, uh, They've never had to question those assumptions. It's just always been the case and that it's an assumed default. And what, what Bitcoin, and I think one of the best things about it is, is it's causing people to have to ask those really fundamental questions because when they think about, well, what, what is Bitcoin? And they think about, well, is it for commerce? Is it, is it gold? I think the first question that they have to ask is, well, wh why, what is money? And why do all these people walking around take this piece of paper or a digital representation of it. And as they start to ask those questions, and this was, you know, one of one of you know the critical pieces of my path is that I first had to unlock because most people, if you if you explain gold to them, most people don't think of gold as money. And and I didn't. And that was one of the things that SAFE helped me understand was just at a at a very root level why gold was valuable valued and why it was valuable as a monetary medium because something you know somebody will not accept a form of payment in a in a currency if they don't consider it to 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 be a value or or ultimately to be money and so i think that you know, when we think about that in the context of of bitcoin relative to gold or bitcoin and what it will be used as or or, or for commerce is that and i completely agree with vj that as the population density of bitcoin holders increases the volatility will go down kind of over time as part of that process and just a, naturally a greater number of people are going to be accepting it in their stores or you know if you're invoicing it as you know a shipping business whatever it may be that Early on, it will be more niche use cases because the method of payment is that much more valuable that they otherwise wouldn't be able to facilitate the transaction. P potentially, like rather than paying uh, PayPal seven percent fees, maybe you'll facilitate a payment cross border with Bitcoin. Uh, but realistically, somebody has to first understand why they want to hold Bitcoin and and why they why they should think about it as money before then they're then willing to accept it at their place of business. But as more people do that. Then you're 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 likely it's like I don't it's not going to all just happen at once. It's, it's that volatility is going to decline as more and more people hold it, and as more and more people hold it, the probability that you're going to walk into a store and someone's going to say, "Oh, you know, you can pay me in Bitcoin or in dollars." That that will that you know over the next you know I think in two, three, four, five years will become increasingly prevalent, but that the volatility of Bitcoin will decline as part of that process. So that's really interesting, a couple of points in there as well. So VJ was actually, maybe it's by virtue of others, but was the first person to teach me about the value of Bitcoin as money. And it was the chart within your bullish case for Bitcoin series, which explained the different properties of money and it ranked fiat, Bitcoin and, and gold. And that was a, a real eye opener for me in kind of understanding why Bitcoin is so important. And then Parker, when we made our show, we went into the history of money and, and what money is. And I guess what, what I'm getting at, Parker, is... I think a lot of people don't really generally think about money too much in terms of intrinsically what it is. I think a lot of people, it's it's like breathing. It's just like a natural thing for them. They spend, they don't think about it. But with Bitcoin, there's a real need to actually try and understand what money is, to try and understand the money supply, to try and understand what different types of money are. And getting people to take that journey sometimes can be quite difficult. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things in... Um 
where I think sometimes there's a reaction where if you ask somebody that question, like, what is money? You know, why, why is the dollar accepted by 300 million people, if not a billion people all over the world? Uh, that, it, that it, in some ways it frustrates people. It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What is money? Uh, like they don't even have the context to be able to, you know, they, they, they describe it in terms of, well, it's what I pay, what I get paid in and what I pay, but it's like, no, no. Why do people value it in the first place? What are the properties that, that create the inherent demand? And naturally people, when they start to, to first think about it, or if they were to say things, they'd say, oh, well, cause the government gives its value or because guys with guns give it value or because it's a collective hallucin, uh, you know, basically it's just a collective, you know, belief that we all we all think it's money, and that that uh, you know, because Bitcoin because Bitcoin is what it is, and because people are going through this process in their own way, and oftentimes something clicks for a reason that it that that it does for you know differently for somebody else, that they see the price rising, they see more and more people being engaged, and that eventually they just can't ignore it. And that as soon as they can't ignore it, and as, as soon as they start to scratch the surface, and I think Michael Saylor is a, a perfect example of that. I was like, if you're really going to get into it, that the real rabbit hole is what is money. And as soon as you start going through that process, you naturally have to, if, if, if you're going to, to really think of it in that, in that grain, you're going to have to start going down to a, a really root principle kind of analysis of you know, like what was in VJ's um, bullish case for Bitcoin, where he starts stacking them up next to each other and saying, okay, well, what are the properties? What, and, and Safe also does a great job of this in his book of, of comparing them side by side, because it's one of the realizations that I came to, which is money is never absolute. It's always relative. And, and it's, a, it's a recognition that it's a tool that, that you know, man invented to help facilitate exchange and the intermediation of trade. And that in that world, no good is going to, you know, quote unquote out be perfect, but it will be more functional and it will be more functional based on an objective set of properties, which VJ did a great job uh, in his article of just laying out kind of the, the, the various uh, different characteristics that you should think about when you're we're thinking about a monetary medium. And perhaps some people need to go through the pain. So I don't know if you saw it, it was quite interesting. Um, I don't know if any of you saw this, any of you can jump in. But uh, with Apple, you get charts for your podcast rankings. And about three weeks after the news broke of the, Leb the, the crash of the currency in Lebanon, my show was the number one financial show in the country, which for me was really kind of like a bit of an eye opener, but like, okay, that kind of makes sense because if you're going through that pain, you might hear about something like that. That might be the driver that brings you into it. And Robert, that goes to what you said. It then becomes more of a, a hedge against inflation. And sadly, it may be a bit too late for people in Lebanon, but if you keep, perhaps Turkey may be a better example. Okay, their rates of inflation are more insidious, insidious than say the UK and the US. I think they're at about 12%, but that may be, that may be the kick that you need to realize, like, I can't keep holding this, this weak asset. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I actually like to encourage people to pursue that question, what is money? Because that is the rabbit, I think, that takes you down the proverbial Bitcoin rabbit hole. And asking that question, you know, as Parker said, like, it's so fundamental. Like, we think about money every day, whether we want to or not. You just have to. You think in dollars, right? And it's almost like the software of money is integrated to the software of our mental machinery, right? Like our unit of account sort of defines reality for us in a lot of ways. And it's almost like asking a question like, what is water? 
in organic chemistry. Like water just touches everything in life. So by asking that question, you end up interacting, interfacing with all aspects of life. And, you know, back to VJ's point in terms of adoption for, for payments, I, I, I got this from VJ's work was, uh, I think it was William Jevons. It said uh, gold was adopted along a very particular monetization path. You know, first it was a collectible, then it was a store value. Then after it had accreted enough value, it began being used as a medium of exchange. And then finally, when it's widely adopted enough as a medium of exchange, people actually start to denominate trade and prices in the money. So I think that is the best analogy for what Bitcoin is doing. Clearly, it's being hoarded right now, uh, used as a store of value. And then as it accretes more value, there's more incentive for early adopters and holders to use it as a medium of exchange. And the other the thing about dollars is interesting. Like People do kind of short circuit when you ask them that question, what is money, if they haven't thought deeply about it. But I always like to draw their attention back to dollars. You only think in dollars today because they were once redeemable for gold, right? The free market selected gold as money because it best satisfied the properties of money, which I can press down to five. I know people do five to 15. I say it's divisibility, durability, recognizability, portability, and scarcity. The only reason dollars were introduced as a money substitute for gold is because gold lacked in the divisibility and portability departments. So paper currency was introduced as a means of satisfying these shortcomings of gold. And people began to think in dollars or euro or yen or whatever it was, but only because it was redeemable for a free market selected money. And then it's as if we had this bait and switch pulled on us by government, right? Where they gradually increased money supply relative to reserves. And then finally, we moved on to the zero reserve standard we call fiat currency today. So it's this long game ledger domain or this long con by governments is the only reason people think in dollars today. And I think that's supported too by the total absence of this, uh, this question being addressed in, in mainstream education or mainstream curriculum. Like no one, there's no zero Austrian economics taught in school at all. You go from kindergarten to a master's degree at Harvard, you'll never hear one peep of Rothbard, Mises, Hayek, any of these guys. And it seems to be a bit deliberate because the state is very closely intertwined uh, to put it nicely with, with the university system. So it's, um, it's a big deal. You know, we, I don't think many people understand it necessarily that gold does make the world go round. It is the, it is still prime money in the world today. And if you don't believe me, just look at central bank balance sheets and their buying activities and all of the abstractions built on top of that are really just their, their faults. They're not, they're not actually money. They're, they're debt. Um, so Bitcoin is a first principles disruption of money. And that's why I think it's such a hard time for people. People have such a hard time getting their head around it. Vijay, have you added Austrian economics to the homeschooling syllabus? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm sort of doing this hybrid homeschooling. My daughter is going to school, but uh, there's an actual school. <laughs> I'm really just supervising the Zoom calls, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to expose her to Austrian economics when she gets to a ripe enough age. <laughs> She's only four years old right now. So, Robert, one thing I want to add into that as well. 
like when you heard about what happened with MicroStrategy, I'd, I'd love to know what your reaction was, especially having read a lot of your work recently, because I felt like that, I mean, all three of you really is a real validation of everything you've all three stood for and uh, and written about. Um, but, and, 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 you Parker as well. The uh, the uh, gradually then suddenly is now becoming a meme for actions such as this. But I spoke with Plan B shortly after he released his updated S two F model, his cross asset model, and we kind of discussed what Phase Five might be, and we kind of thought, well, maybe it's nation state adoption. But at no point did it even cross our mind that it might be treasury allocation. And then in comes micro strategy, not with just a small purchase. Um, I think it was 1.8% of the supply across kind of like two phases. Just first with you, Robert, like what was your reaction to that? Did you feel like it was validation? Did Were you surprised or is this something you expected? Uh, I would say it was sudden. Um, I didn't expect someone to jump in to the degree that Mr. Saylor did. However, I think, yeah, it's a huge validation for all three of us. Like we've all and all Bitcoiners in general, I think have been beating this drum for a long time that the game theory of Bitcoin sort of operates at all scales, right? We're seeing it adopted first at kind of the grassroots level, but then at some point at the highest level, a central bank would be forced to adopt it at some point as again, as an insurance policy against its success. But in between there's all types, you know, many different sizes and, and types of capital pools. And I didn't see this one coming necessarily, but, um, it makes all the sense in the world, given Mr. Saylor's business, his cash position, and what's happening in the world today. You know, he he makes a great point that even if it was, if we were on a gold standard and you're only inflating at two percent a year, you know, that's basically getting your value cut in half after thirty five years. And he's looking at at making investments on a hundred year time horizon. So when you're looking at things in that respect. And we see this, this perpetual violation of private property rights by governments through monetary inflation. It's like, what else could you invest in? You have to invest in the one asset that has definable certain scarcity and that can't be changed by the result of any government decision. So I, I think it's a huge validation for the space. And I also think it's an escalation of the game theory. And I tweeted about this. So... MicroStrategy is one of 41,000 listed, listed companies globally that collectively control about $80 trillion in balance sheet. I think they have about $5 trillion of that is liquid. So call it a $5 trillion liquid treasury. Sailor bought 38,250 Bitcoin. Only, I think the number was 520 other listed companies globally of the 41,000 could possibly make that same buy based just on Bitcoin supply constraints assuming 20 million Bitcoin total. So less than 1% of the listed companies globally could possibly buy that much Bitcoin just based on Bitcoin supply constraints. So it's it's escalating this game of musical chairs, right? Where um, all of a sudden this corporate treasury has uh, made it a part of their strategy and they've also de-risked it for other corporate treasuries. And it's, it's pushing others to adopt similar courses of action or face, you know, financial detriment. So that I just see it, this game theory sort of permeating itself upwards from the grassroots level to the now in the corporate level. And I would say within the next decade, you'll see it at the central bank level. What about yourself, VJ? What did you make of it when you saw it? 
I mean, it was obviously very exciting uh, to see a public company invest such a large fraction of their balance sheet in in Bitcoin, and and it was really gratifying as well. To I, you know, I messaged Michael and and said it was really cool to hear that you shared my article with uh, the executive team of the company. That was really cool, and he, he replied with some nice uh, things to say. And obviously, he's also been influenced by Parker and Robert as well. Um, those guys have written some really insightful and fantastic stuff, which has influenced me too. I think the biggest thing I take away from it is that it sets a precedent uh, that public companies can do this uh, and it reduces the stigma of it because, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember uh, when there was this stigma around Bitcoin that it was only used for buying drugs online and US, a U.S. Senator, Charles Schumer, declaimed it on the floor of the U.S. Senate as this, uh, you know, criminal tool. Uh, so I, I think some of that stigma, most of that stigma, I think, by now has gone away. I think it's widely recognized that this is a very powerful tool. Uh, and seeing a U.S. public company uh, invest is uh, going to further reduce that stigma. I'm a little hesitant to say that this is going to cause a stampede because when you when you look at Michael's uh, background, he's he has a history of pretty unconventional bets. I mean, the guy made $30 million selling a domain. <laughs> uh, and, and that I actually take from that story, what I thought was interesting about that story about selling a domain for $30 million is that he had... Uh, an experience early in his career which helped him understand digital scarcity. He was already primed for this. He was already ready to understand why Bitcoin was valuable. He had a mental model. Um, I think most CEOs, publicly traded companies, aren't going to start with that mental model. It's going to take a few other companies dipping their toes into Bitcoin. Maybe Square is the next one. Maybe Jack Dorsey, because he, he is such a big fan of Bitcoin. Maybe he pushes Square to invest some some, some of their treasury in, in Bitcoin. But but for most CEOs, I think they're going to have to hear about it from a number of people that they trust before they're willing to consider this. So I don't see it as an imminent stampede. And this is something I've talked about a, a little bit, is this, the psychological process that takes place before someone is willing to uh, even care about Bitcoin, you know, let alone in invest some of their savings in it. And I, and I call this the number of touch points that the person has to have, the number of people that they have to hear from talking about Bitcoin with some interest before they the light goes off in their head and they think, oh, well, maybe I should get involved in this. And, and typically it's a number of touch points. I've heard about it from a few people combined with the price rising. Those two factors are, are very powerful in bringing new people into Bitcoin. Um, so I think, you know, this bull market may see uh, a number of public companies get interested with the price rising and, and seeing that there are other CEOs willing to do this. But, that process could take a couple of years. I, I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Yeah, Parker, I, I want to ask you the same question, but I just want to throw a couple of other points in there as well that you might want to comment on. So uh, again, I mentioned I interviewed Lynn Alden um, yesterday, and that went live today. One of the things she said that was very interesting about MicroStrategy is they've also essentially created a Bitcoin ETF 
for those people buying buying their stock. But another point that's kind of stood out to me is that you know, if MicroStrategy, if more companies invest in Bitcoin like MicroStrategy, potentially they create a, a, a legal moat around Bitcoin, which makes it uh, more difficult to regulate away in that it will cause way too much harm to the companies who have actually invested in it. Do you, do you see that as relevant? Yeah, I definitely do. And, you know, echoing BJ's thoughts on this, that, you know, probably my, my first thoughts was, man, that that's a lot of Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and then I thought about the people that were on the other side of that trade and sent, said uh, 10 Hail Marys for micro strategies that they just scammed a lot of people out of their Bitcoin. Uh, but then I thought about the, the uh, legal and regulatory cover. Because I think that on the one side, it, it is validation, but I think more importantly to Bitcoin, it, it, it is a public company. And, and Michael Saylor mentioned this. I can't remember which podcast it was on, but he talked about, yeah, it, there's disclosure requirements. There's processes that they had to go through. Um, I believe they're audited by KPMG. Um, and so, it, you know, like I don't, I don't like to think about like the institutionalization about Bitcoin, but I do think that there are important markers that that make it very difficult to go back and that provide cover. And I, I, while realistically there should already be sufficient cover when you have the squares of the world, not only having Cash App but advertising to buy Bitcoin on Joe Rogan's podcast, and you have companies like the CME trading futures and and ICE owning back that, that there already is a lot of cover, but but this is just another kind of notch on the belt. And, and I think it, it is meaningful um, for those reasons. And I also think it's just meaningful for, you know, one of the things that, that Robert mentioned is that probably to me, one of the most interesting things about MicroStrategy was that they picked this up in 2020 and they went hard down the rabbit hole. It wasn't just one individual. It was one individual with a board and a company and shareholders and, and having to get consensus and doing that in a fairly quick time frame. You know, and I, and again, I, I agree with VJ in the sense of this isn't just going to open the floodgates. On the margin, it is going to cause a number of companies to start going down their own process. And that that one of the best things about that is, and, and this is this is what Robert mentioned, but that that Austrian economics just isn't taught. In you know, you know, I got an economics degree, and it, it probably is taught. You know, it, it's not fair to say it's not taught anywhere, but but realistically, it's not part of a standard economics curriculum. And that if any of us, you know, any of us here, but MicroStrategies is a perfect example. If you pick it up later in life or with some world experience, we're all generally educated on the other path, the other side, which, you know, I think once you start to learn about economics, it's not, you know, just a intellectual debate. You compare it to the actual real world experiences that you've had, and you've you've had one education, and you're getting a second one, and you're you're having to ask yourself because there are real life consequences to well, which one is correct with with objective results, and that because we already have the benefit of that past education, we can look at something fresh and be able to 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 more aptly evaluate it. And the more and more people that do that continually come out on the side of, of understanding why this other approach is a better approach, um, you know, based on objective facts. And so I think the combination of them being a public company, the combination of there being multiple people that, that had to gain consensus within an organization because they do have exposure and they do have liability. But then I do think it also provides that regulatory cover of a public company doing it, signaling to other public companies that they can, but that going through SEC scrutiny, auditing from you know big four auditors that it does just mainstream and, and reinforce that, uh, that that we're not all, not all just a bunch of criminals and drug dealers 
I'll open the next one up to any of you. Just like put your hand up if you want to answer this, because I'm, I'm not sure who's best to answer. But are there any potential downsides to mass adoption of Bitcoin by companies? Is there is anyone looked into this? Any consideration for the distribution? Could there be any negative effects of this? I mean, I, so one one thing that I would say is, I believe that it's inevitable. Okay. So we can we can argue the merits of you know whether or not I, I don't see the downside first off, but but it's if you have a form of money that has a finitely scarce supply and that that money is a very basic necessity. One one of the ways that I distill it for people is you know. If you if you stop to think about how clean water gets to your home every day, or how you reliably go to a grocery store and you have tens of thousands of options of food on the shelf, and how gas mass you know, magically appears at the gas station every single day, the only reason that comfort is possible is because of the coordination function of money, and and then the extension of that is money is a very basic necessity, and if there's this thing Bitcoin that has by an order of magnitude, stronger monetary properties that ev- practically everyone in the world is going to demand that. So I think the um, you know the, the reality of debating whether or not it's good or bad. I think you know more people being able to speak the same language of value inevitably will be good. Are there some kind of potential landmines in terms of privacy? And surveillance and things that we need to, to to not kind of lose sight of, absolutely. But if we're just dealing in objective reality, it you know I believe it will happen. So it's just a matter of how do we um, kind of manage any potential downsides, of which I expect there to be few, and that positive externalities to to massively outweigh any potential negative um, consequences of having you know a publicly shared ledger of, of transactions for a, a global monetary system. Robert, you wanted to add into that? Yeah, I'll just. Add, and this is sort of a more generalized risk that I think about with Bitcoin is actually the timing of hyper Bitcoinization or worldwide adoption, whatever you want to call it. I think if it actually, like, if it were to happen today, for instance, if all if you could flip a switch and Bitcoin were um, would just accrete all the value that it would at maturity, it would actually exacerbate wealth disparity because it's in so few hands today but it's becoming more widely distributed with each price cycle. So I think there actually is a risk there that this tool that is designed to, you know, in a way disrupt the monopoly on money, which is the driver of the, one of the chief drivers of wealth inequality in the world. Wealth inequality clearly is a natural phenomenon in a capitalistic system. But when you're using monetary inflation to artificially siphon wealth off those at the bottom, you're continuously dispossessing people in the, in the economic hierarchy. So it actually exacerbates wealth disparity. So I think kind of in a weird way, Bitcoin, if, it, if, it, if we Bitcoinize too quickly, this tool that ultimately promises to alleviate wealth disparity and increase wealth generation could actually exacerbate wealth disparity. So that's an interesting risk to think about. And the other thing is um, if... Today, people don't understand money, as we've clearly laid out. So if, if banks were to adopt Bitcoin pretty rapidly and rehypothecate and run fractional reserves on top of it and somehow keep their customers satisfied, which I don't think you could maintain that illusion for long, but I think you could um, you could financialize Bitcoin in the short term. I think certain banks could do that. Like, you know, customers don't understand today that even the dollars in their bank account aren't necessarily 
held at the bank, right? Everything's run in, in a fractional reserve. I think you could perpetrate something similar with Bitcoin in the short run, which could uh, present downward price pressure on it and you know cause other complications. So those are a couple of risks that I think about with more mainstream adoption. Next up, I talked to Parker, Robert, and VJ more about what Bitcoin is. But before that, I got a message from my amazing sponsors. So let's talk about Casa, the best, the absolute best in Bitcoin security. Now with Casa, it could not be easier to protect your Bitcoin from hackers, personal mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and so much more. And with Casa being such a badass company, they do have a product for every Bitcoiner. So with Casa Gold, you can get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and it's only going to cost you $10 a month. So seriously, if you haven't got your security shit together, go and check this out. With Casa Platinum, which is the product I have, you get their 3 of 5 multi-sig, the best protection for large Bitcoin holders, and it comes at a great price. And with Casa Diamond, you get their full service offering. This includes a customized personal security review, inheritance, and of course, the best-in-class security. Now, since I've become a Casa customer, it has just come with so much peace of mind. I feel really secure that my Bitcoin is now protected in a multi-sig, so you should definitely go and check it out yourself. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Also, let's talk about sportsbet.io, the absolute best in online gaming. Now, the Premier League is back. Liverpool are crushing it. Three games, three wins, absolutely smashing it. And we know the sports bet loves football. We know they love supporting the Premier League. They went and put a Bitcoin logo on the front of a Premier League shirt, on the front of the Southampton shirt. And now they are also the betting partner of Arsenal. Now, I've been out to Estonia. I've spent time with the team. They love Bitcoin. They want to do everything they can to promote Bitcoin. You know, billions of people around the world can now see this watching Premier League football. Now, they aren't just... Bitcoin fans, they also run the best online gaming site because they accept Bitcoin. So if you want to have a bet on the football, you want to get stuck in, and you want to do it with your Bitcoin, you want to do it with your sats, you can do that over at sportsbet.io. And they always have a bunch of promotions for newly registered customers. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. And last today, but not least, is Least Authority. Now, this one is specifically few techies out there you lot who are building and creating applications now you need to talk to least authority because they are a security consulting company who are pushing the limits of how to build privacy respecting solutions they specialize in security audits design specification reviews and security by design and they can help you improve the security of your wallet application key management solution layer 2 protocol p2p network design use of cryptography and so much more Now, if you want to boost your security strategy, you can arrange a no-obligation call to find out how Lease Authority can help your next project. So have you got any reason not to give them a call? Seriously? Listen, if you want to organize this, head over to their website, hit the schedule a call button, and that's at leastauthority.com, which is L-E-A-S-T-O-U-T-H-O-R-I-T-Y.com. VJ, just moving on from this, I kind of want to move on to kind of what can this really be? Like, where can this really go? I, I'm sure for somebody like yourself who's been into Bitcoin for a long time, you always hoped to see the growth. You always hoped to see the expansion of Bitcoin and the adoption of Bitcoin. But perhaps it has even exceeded your expectation by now because there were so many risks. There's so many opportunities for it to fail or it to be regulated out. But here we are. We're having this conversation from people all around the world. We're talking about an asset with you know, 
billions, like hundreds of billions in value, but also at a time which is really set up well for Bitcoin. Again, I'm going to echo Robert's point about wealth inequality and and refer back to my interview with Lynn Alden again. But she talked about the fourth turning. and, um, And the reason she talked about that is that in the kind of boom and bust cycles, we're in a essentially coming to the end of a super cycle where wealth inequality it's it's kind of like really really like growing, um, especially with what's happening with the pandemic and the stimulus packages kind of exacerbated this. So we're in this really unusual time where we actually have a tool that we could be we could have been in this situation with no Bitcoin. Yeah. Ten years ago, eleven years ago, so totally hadn't created this. We could have been in this exact situation, all doing whatever we would be doing with our lives, but not have this tool. So, like, sorry, it's a big lead up, but how 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 far can this go? And like, realistically for you, and what what's the realistic outcome here? Well, I I believe Bitcoin will be the world's monetary base. I believe it's going to be essentially the same thing that gold was in the 19th century. It's going to be the foundation of a new financial system um, and all sorts of financial infrastructure is going to be built on top of it. Uh, That's that's what I think the the end goal of this is. You know, I'm not necessarily one who thinks Bitcoin solves every problem but i think it solves a very very important problem which is a a non-inflatable censorship resistant monetary basis that dramatically changes the way the world works because the currently governments fund their operations through inflation and if governments have to switch to funding operations through direct taxation that inherently limits the scope of government because there's always going to be pushback when people see money being taken out of their pocket. Inflation and taxation are quite different. Taxation, you see the money going out and people get upset. Like there's a point where, you know, your government takes 40 or 50% out of your paycheck and you reach for the pitchfork. Uh, but, But when they use inflation, people don't really understand that that's even happening, that money is being taken out of their pocket and given to someone who's in a privileged position like a banker. And, and, you know, central banking began uh, as a way to fund war. And and for me, that's one of the the big political issues that will help make the world a better place if Bitcoin becomes the the world's monetary base, is I think it's going to be much harder to fund warfare. Uh, And that, I think, is a a tremendous boon to my children and my grandchildren and so forth. So that's what I'm excited about is Bitcoin changing the world for the better by limiting the scope at which governments can spend and distribute money to people who are politically well connected. When you talk about Bitcoin being the monetary base, essentially a Bitcoin standard, similar to what we have with the gold standard, the gold standard was something that was uh, created by governments, and it was something they adhered to, and eventually they ended the, you know, the the standard. Do you feel with Bitcoin that we're in this unique position in that it's essentially a voluntary standard that you either choose to become part of or not? And essentially, the gravity of Bitcoin would kind of force you to, because other people may say, "Well, look, I don't want to trade with you because you are not using Bitcoin." Well, I, I, yeah, I, I slightly disagree with that. I didn't think okay. governments created standard. I, I think gold was chosen as money by the market because it was just inherently superior to everything else that was tried before, seashells and uh, cows and even silver. 
uh, and and gold eventually triumphed because there's this network effect and it sucks savings in. People realize that they want to be they want to keep savings in the monetary good that everyone else uses. So it's game theoretic in a sense. You're sort of looking around saying, I want to keep my savings in something. What do I keep it in? Should I keep it in shovels? Should I keep it in fishing rods? No, I want to keep it in the thing everyone else wants to keep it in, which is gold. And so this network effect gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think governments just ultimately recognized that gold was the most demanded money. And so they said, okay, well, that's what we have. We have a gold standard. And, and of course, governments sort of manipulated the gold standard. They they um, issued their own bills and said these bills are redeemable in gold. So that's what you might call the classical gold standard, that a, a dollar or a pound was redeemable for a certain amount of gold and, and, and nations traded back and forth these bills, but really what they were referring to gold underneath. So I, I think it has to be a market phenomena. And I think that the same thing is going to be true for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is going to be adopted by the market because it's so much superior to the alternatives and it's superior to gold as well. Um, the big disadvantage of gold is its physicality. It's, it's a physical object which really it, it, it causes these problems of centralization of custody. If you hold a large amount of gold, if you're Rockefeller or JP Morgan and you have a lot of gold, you're not going to keep it under your mattress. You're going to put it somewhere where it's secure in a bank. And the problem with that is that banks are easily raided. It's very easy for a government to come in and say, look, all your gold is ours now. The The fact that Bitcoin is digital and not physical gets away from that custodying problem. People, if they want, at fairly low cost, can custody their own Bitcoin. And if there's ever a question of lack of trust in a financial institution, you can pull your pull your Bitcoin very quickly. The, the same was not true for gold. Um, you would have periodic bank runs where people would lose confidence in a bank and then run down to the bank and try and pull out, pull out the gold. But um, I, I think the, the digital nature of Bitcoin makes it so that centralized custodying is less of a risk than it was um, with gold. And yourself, Parker, how about yourself? How do you feel about right now? Like if we went back a year, I used to see you every couple of months. I'd be flying over to the States and I'd always have a little trip to Austin and would catch up. And now I can't get on a plane. The world's a very different place. A lot of weird stuff's going on. Again, it feels like a. it's sometimes hard to celebrate it because you don't want to see people go through hard times. But we do have this taller Bitcoin. Like how far do you think this can go? Yeah, I actually I missed the days. I think this time last year we were in Wyoming, yeah, we uh, were. eating ribeyes and, and at a, at a hackath Bitcoin hackathon. So yeah, uh, the, the world has changed, but but we'll we'll get back to that um, hopefully someday soon. But I, I do I agree with VJ. I think that uh, that Bitcoin will um, you know over time, and I probably more so than most people think it will be on a more accelerated basis than um, than, than a lot of people, but that. The entire world will shift over to uh, to a Bitcoin standard, and that that Bitcoin will be, you know, again, things will always be considered near money, and that there will never be, you know, a hundred percent adoption of Bitcoin money as money. Everything's uh, everything is relative, and and that that ultimately through money we are 
um, using it as a, as a medium to, to facilitate a series of, of transactions or exchanges. And one of the ways that, uh, or one of the you know, authors and, and, and writings that helped me understand you know, not just Austrian economics, but then also as it relates to Bitcoin, um, it was Hayek and um, a couple of pieces, the use of knowledge in society, particularly where he talks about the function of a pricing mechanism and that the pricing mechanism is really a, a channel of communication or a communication system in which only the relevant information is passed along. And it's essentially a filter. Uh, and one of the, I don't know if it's the example he uses, but it's one that I relate to. It would be like if, a, if there's an earthquake in Chile and the copper supply chains get disrupted and you're a producer in the United States and you're building houses and it involves copper um, for telecommunications or, or wh whatever requires copper that you may not know that there was an earthquake in, in Chile, but you know that the cost, something happened in, in, in the cost of copper and that you need to either charge more to your end customer, substitute or do something else, but that, that's that the price mechanism is really a communication channel. And that you know, the, the realization that I had was that a pricing mechanism and a price system only emerges out of the common use of a, of a common medium of exchange or a common currency. That the, that the pricing mechanism is the output of convergence on a common form of money. And that at the end of the day, that is us all being able to speak the same language of value, that the value is an inherently subjective concept and that it is the common use of, of money that allows us to be able to objectively, you know, kind of gather to what, you know, value is or how we think about value, which is an intersubjective problem. So I think that kind of at that highest level, it is we are all going to be using, you know, to, you know, 95% plus of the world, the same form of money. And what that's going to allow us to do is in a more direct way than we've ever possibly been able to, to speak the same common language of value to more people. And that the, you know, as VJ mentioned, that the end result of, of more being more people being able to communicate uh, the, the same language. But then I think as he pointed out, taking away that 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 ability to to cause distortion in that function, to to allow a central bank or a government to, to intervene to be able to print money, um, that that also requires that anybody that that is voluntarily participating in the in the monetary network are not necessarily requiring, but will be the, the preponderance is that if you want to, to, to attain some of that form of money, you're going to have to deliver value in a peaceful way. Not to say in a hundred percent, we're not, um, you know, I think naive, we don't live in a utopian world, but that more and more people will have that channel to cooperate and to coordinate because they will be able to speak a common form of language. And that, that kind of monetary standard will all be built on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is the international language of cooperation. Yeah. Amazing. All right, Robert, you as well, man. What do you think? You already mentioned hyper-Bitcoinization. Like, what do you think right now? I know you're a deep thinker about this stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I think it's very important to understand the history of government uh, as largely this system that has time and time again plundered the Commonwealth through monetary inflation, Right. Every government gives in to the temptation to control money. They always manipulate the rules and supply to their own benefit and externalize all the costs onto society up to the point of basically social disintegration, right? That was the, the fall of Rome. We see, you know, hyperinflationary events in Venezuela today and arguably we're not far off 
uh, from something similar in the, the more developed world. And I think in that context, uh, frames up Bitcoin's importance really nicely because Bitcoin, if you consider that governments continuously plunder their commonwealth through inflation, Bitcoin is basically plunder-proof money, right? It's money that cannot be easily confiscated directly because it's just it's non-corporeal. It's really hard to physically confiscate and you can't inflate it at all. So there, it completely eliminates theft via inflation. And so in that respect, I consider Bitcoin in its distant um, future to become this base money for a global digital non-state economy. And that has two functions, right? Like to Parker's point about providing us this universal language of value or this, this uh, channel of exchange that's totally free from the noise of unexpected inflation. It actually increases wealth generation because it's, it's lowering the barriers to trade and trade is what causes wealth, right? And it also reduces capital and wealth destruction to Vijay's point by defunding the war machine, right? Like war is the most anti-economic activity we can possibly engage in. We're literally mobilizing capital to go and destroy other capital. And so it's just, it's totally maniacal and, and insane. So I think Bitcoin in that grand sense sort of saves us from ourselves in a lot of way uh, and really pushes us and forces us to, to become more economic and cooperative. And another thing I, I think about is the nature of uh, like man has a sinful nature, right? As someone would tell you uh, from a Christian perspective. And it's, it's the, it's actually greed. I think that drove the game theory of gold, right? It's like, everyone's looking to have uh, their wealth stored in a medium that is least subject to compromise by others, intentional compromise by others. And that's what drove people to adopt gold, right? No matter what you did, you couldn't counterfeit it. Um, alchemists couldn't produce it. No one could um, in, inflate its supply no matter how hard they tried. So in that sense, I think Bitcoin's interesting too because greed is what actually drives Bitcoin's market value, right? There's this huge incentive to hold it and hoard it. And it also secures its network, right? Bitcoin mining is this purely capitalistic activity where the, the, the race for profit margins actually creates a larger and more robust and anti-fragile network. So in that sort of, I guess, religious sense, I look at Bitcoin as this system that converts the individual sin of greed into our collective salvation. So I think that's just a really interesting way to look at it. Damn. Do you, do you, um, do you think about like the road to hyper-Bitcoinization? Do you think about perhaps the collapse of modern governance? I mean, look, I, I, I'm a, I wouldn't call myself a libertarian like, um, VJ, but I'm definitely a sympathizer to the ideas. I've just never really, I've always struggled to really understand a, a society without government. Do you, have you thought about the the kind of road to hyper-Bitcoinization and perhaps that it might be a kind of like a bloody road that we might have to go through a period of turmoil to get there? Have you considered that? Uh, I, I always point people on the subject to the book. We've probably all read The Sovereign Individual. I think that's the most accurate uh, portrayal of what I, the direction I think things would take over time. But the, the funny thing about government is that, so effectively it's a, it started out as a localized protection racket, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, we have the monopoly on violence so that you all citizens aren't violent against one another. We'll provide you this nonviolent means of dispute resolution called the rule of law. And that was meant to support trade and wealth creation. But the, the, the weird thing about that is when a, 
government. So you're basically it's the biggest uh, protection group in the room. But when there when two protection groups conflict and one defeats the other, uh, all citizens kind of want to go to the guy that won, right? So government has this inherently centralizing effect, and um, I, I think that that's what got us to where we are today is that the state is that the biggest gang in the room with the most guns and violence, but they, they can only support their size because of fiat currency because they're able to confiscate wealth at scale. So again, in that book, sovereign individual, it actually uh, depicts a, a decentralization of those monopolies. So something looking much more akin to game of Thrones or like uh Old, old style organized crime where you have local mafias. Um, I think that's kind of the direction we will move, but the counterbalance to all the, the traditional uh, incentives to violence is we're, we're living in a knowledge-based economy now, right? More so, more and more. So there's, there's a big disincentive to violence there um, from a nation state level. And then two, again, the unconfiscatability of Bitcoin. It's just, it doesn't make as much sense to go, to war or go and go into a, a, a gang war to try and defeat your enemy if you can't confiscate any wealth from them, which gets into a whole nother aspect of Bitcoin that's super interesting, which is collaborative custody, multi, multi-signature solutions like, like what Parker and Unchained are working on. I mean, these things were simply not possible with any monetary technology before. So it's, it's this huge uh, impetus for us to become, again, more cooperative and, and economic. All right, that sounds like a, a whole show in itself, my man. Uh, I'll probably have to grow <laughs> on that at some point. VJ, okay, so listen, I, I'm obviously bored and I've got skin in the game with all this. What do you think are our biggest hurdles here collectively as Bitcoiners, but but also potentially in terms of like all the different tools or options or things out there? What are the biggest hurdles for us to get us to this better place? Is it education? Is it technical? Is it apathy? Is it regulations? What are the things that are the biggest hurdles for us to get over? I think it's just the size of the fiat on-ramps. I think, you know, the the biggest impediment to more money coming to Bitcoin is the ease with which people can get their money into Bitcoin. Um, you still kind of need to, I mean, it's not that hard, but you still need to figure out going to an exchange and, and, and putting in a buy order and, um, do I keep it on the exchange? Do I keep it on a hardware wallet? That sort of thing. You know, I think something like um, a, a Bitcoin ETF would help a little bit. Uh, I, I just view it as like the number of on-ramps that you have is going to help Bitcoin, the, the ease with which you can get your money into Bitcoin. So we have, you know, Coinbase, Square Cash, Kraken, etc. I think it's going to help when the... Uh, the larger financial institutions see that the smaller institutions are making a lot of money from people buying and selling Bitcoin. I mean, if you're a payment processor, you can't help but notice that Square is making a lot of their profit from Bitcoin. I mean, Square is like a, you know, not particularly interesting or successful payment processor compared to the others in the space. It's not like it's dominant or anything, but they're making a lot of money from this. If I was Venmo or if I was Stripe, I I would definitely be paying attention. And and eventually I think the larger financial institution is going to see the amount of profit that's being made. uh, And that's going to increase the on-ramps to Bitcoin. So really education is great. It helps 
I think, to get certain people down the rabbit hole. But ultimately, I think most of adoption is going to be uh, due to greed. People just want to be involved. And that's why you have these waves getting bigger and bigger where people have heard a little bit, little bit about it in the previous wave. And so they're, they're somewhat primed. Maybe they bought a little bit of Bitcoin in the previous wave. And then in the next wave, they've, they've seen their stake grow to something that's somewhat meaningful in their portfolio. And they get really interested and they, they jump in because of, naturally they, they're greedy. Uh, and each wave sees a new batch of people coming in because of this. It's just you need to get to the place where the average person or my, you know, my mother feels like it's something that she can do. It's easy for her to do. Um, and that process is just going to take time. I, I, I'm not worried. I'm extremely bullish on Bitcoin. I'm as bullish as anyone I know. But I, I'm also not necessarily a person who thinks this has to happen overnight or this is going to happen in a couple of years. Over the time period of 50 years, I'm extremely bullish. I have extreme conviction in Bitcoin. And it's something that I think is um, whatever Bitcoin I have is going to benefit my grandchildren. But the process of opening these on-ramps and the financialization of Bitcoin, I think is going to take time. Um, so yeah, that, that, that time and on-ramps would, would be my answer. How do you feel about that as well, Parker? Because Cash App is great. We also have the Grayscale Trust, uh, talks of fidelity, creating a fund, I've heard. Um, we have a lot of custody solutions now. How do you feel about this kind of range of onboarding solutions that maybe take people away from custody in themselves or operate in a node? Like, do you think that matters? Do you think it's important that we have a lot of people at the grassroots level doing this? Is, you know, is there a certain way that people should be Bitcoining? I don't think that there's a way that people should be Bitcoining. I think that there are natural tendencies and and propensities to do um, or, or to, to to facilitate kind of a a flow from I come in, I know nothing, I follow price, I buy, and then I start learning and understanding more about Bitcoin and, and become more comfortable. And so there's a transition. And I think that that realistically, the best thing about Bitcoin is that it's voluntary and that there are economics involved and that you know, uh, a, a free society will actively and ruthlessly compete to come up with the best ways, not just to buy Bitcoin, but to secure it and, and for different use cases. Because I think that, you know, there, while there's a reason why the longer that people remain in Bitcoin, the more likely they are to, to facilitate self-custody. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the way that we think about it unchained, why we develop around multi-sig and try to put keys in the hands of, uh, of our clients is because that's where we see the most mature Bitcoin Bitcoiners ending their journey. But I also agree with, with v VJ that, you know, and, and I think it's really a function of the, the size of Bitcoin as back as Bitcoin increases in value, there's more capital being invested in the more, the more that Bitcoin is worth, the more infrastructure that can be built. And that Bitcoin, I think generally because of human psychology is adopted in waves. And in some ways you can look at that as irrational and otherwise you can, you can look at it as rational that people are following a pricing system and a pricing mechanism and a price signal and saying, I don't know why I'm supposed to be buying Bitcoin, but other people are, I'm going to, I need some of that. And, and that as people do that, then more, then again, value increases, more people get sucked down the rabbit hole, more people understand it. But then also there's, it's, it's stealing mindshare away from 
a legacy monetary system. And as, as that process occurs, more in, more, with more people's attention on it, the better technology gets and the better that the infrastructure gets and, and the wider the distribution becomes. And one of the ways that, that I, I describe it is, if you think, because I think this came up uh, previously, or Vijay mentioned it, but when you think about gold as a monetary medium, it wasn't something that was agreed upon by governments. At one point in time, gold was ore in the ground. And that as more people kind of found found it valuable, whether it be for you know decorative or collectible reasons, it more and more people owned it. As more people owned it, then a monetary network was built around it. I think about where we are in Bitcoin today is Bitcoin is that ore in the ground and it's becoming money as we build the monetary network around it. And that monetary network is dependent on infrastructure and that there naturally is just not going to be a one size fits all solution, but that more and more people, and I think, I think you know, just as, as, as Bitcoin experiences positive externalities from value, the dollar and all other fiat systems have a negative selection problem. As more people think about how, like, you know, more people like the stripes of the world, like Vijay mentioned, they're looking at Square and saying, how are people going to be moving Bitcoin around in the future? I have a skill set and maybe technology in place that I can use to, 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 lev to be leveraged in that new monetary system, that it only gets better. And, and I think that while we're making certain investment decisions on our side around self-custody, because we think it's where most people for the lion's share of their you know, kind of economics will be stored when they're holding Bitcoin, we're also recognizing that, that everyone doesn't get there overnight and that realistically, just based on the nature of, of money, that there's going to be various different applications and they're going to look differently, but that's going to evolve and only get better in time as, you know, 500 million people have Bitcoin, a billion people, because just the competition will dictate that it will. All right, listen, I've got a couple of questions left I want to get through. don't want to take up too much more of your time, uh, but I do appreciate it. Robert, what are the risks here? How can we fuck this up? And I don't, I mean, I don't mean just us. I mean collectively, society as a whole. What, what, what's the shit that you worry about? Or is it just inevitable? Um, I mean, nothing is inevitable. I, I definitely hesitate to ever use that word. But I will say that of anything I've ever looked at in my life, I would put Bitcoin as closest, as nearest inevitable as I could. I think there are risks with there's a battleground to be had now on for privacy with Bitcoin. Um, and it may actually be the battlegrounds of the next hard fork. You know, some people think you need privacy at the base layer, but there is sort of a trade-off there with, with guaranteeing the 21 million. And then there's also a need to increase transaction throughput to, for Bitcoin to evolve into its medium of exchange role. Now there's a lot of promise in the Lightning Network to sort of resolve both of those issues with privacy and transaction throughput, but that's still very early. In terms of other risk, I just say, you know, again, nothing is inevitable. So black swans by definition are unknown unknowns. Bitcoin's still very young, you know, even though it's it's got quite the track record in its short life, it is still very young. So uh, I just advise people to, you know, be cautious, invest in education and never invest more than you can uh, afford to lose unless you're irresponsibly long like some of us may or may not be. Yeah, I'm irresponsibly long, but fuck it. Uh, VJ, yeah. is there anything you, anywhere you think, well, I say that, but do you know what? I, some people are irresponsibly long on the pound or the dollar. Like, 
if you really look at it, um, I, you could say I'm irresponsibly long on Bitcoin, but the reason I moved like up to 60% of my cash reserves from my company in is because I felt I was irresponsibly long on cash. I've got no need to spend this money over the next year to two years. That's where I felt. And I kind of, I flipped the script on myself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. That's a sailor move and I, I support it. Yeah, cool. So VJ, yourself, do you think, what are the risks here yourself? Like, you've been a long time Bitcoiner. You've been deep in this for a long time. Uh, you know, I, I commented on Twitter that I think Bitcoin has been substantially de-risked in the last three years. Uh, I, I think significantly, this isn't like, you know, it's gradually de-risked. I, I think the biggest risk that Bitcoin faced was the hard fork and the, the contentious hard fork in 2017 when you had a real attack on Bitcoin. The, the biggest, um, most powerful companies in the space tried to change Bitcoin to suit themselves. Really, they have businesses and they thought, we want to change Bitcoin to benefit us. We want to reduce transaction fees and that's what we think Bitcoin should be. And they failed. And, and that's Bitcoin is the only cryptocurrency that has faced a test like this. And ultimately, I think the only risk that matters and the risk that will eventually matter is a state attack. Uh, and because Bitcoin is a non-sovereign currency and eventually states are going to realize it's going to threaten their monetary policy. And you see slight inklings of this where people say, well, if Bitcoin gets really big, then it's going to make it hard for central banks to manipulate interest rates. Well, yeah, that's what you want. Duh. But there will come a point where nation states, if they feel threatened enough, may try to attack Bitcoin. And the question is whether or not it can survive that attack. That is the only attack that I think is significant, except perhaps for protocol risk. There is still lingering, there will always be lingering protocol risk because it's built on cryptography. And perhaps we learn something about cryptography that we didn't know that blows this all out, like quantum computing becomes really cheap or something like that. I think the risk there is very small and has diminished significantly over time. And that's partly because of Satoshi's genius in choosing, he was extremely conservative in the, the cryptography he used. The choices he made were to build Bitcoin on very well-established, well-understood cryptography um, that had been well-tested for many, many years. Um, he could have gone with the bleeding edge, but he didn't. Um, and honestly, that's part of Bitcoin's ethos is to be conservative and boring which is really good. We, you, you don't want to build a financial system on a, on, on, a, uh, on a base that is constantly changing and has an ethos of move fast, break things. Break things. Uh, <laughs> which when I look at Ethereum, that's what I see. I see it's essentially an experiment. They, yeah. It's an experiment in computer science and well and good they get to play with that and, and try and experiment. But I would never want to build a financial system on top of something like that. So Bitcoin's core ethos has been to be stable and to be conservative. And I think that's redu helped reduce the risk over time. So I was saying that um, an attack by a nation state is the only risk that I think is meaningful. And the question in my mind is whether we get to political capture fast enough for that risk to, to diminish. And I'll give an example of Uber, uh, the ride-sharing app. What happened with Uber is that they would go into markets and they would disrupt the, the existing taxi business. And it was 
very, very unpopular with the taxi companies and they would lobby hard and local governments would be very sympathetic, you know, having gotten a lot of donations and having this very cosy relationship with taxi companies. And they would fight back and they'd try and regulate Uber and try and make it like a taxi company. But Uber had an advantage that it had all of these drivers out there who were very incentivized for Uber to succeed and not to be regulated. And it had a lot of users as well. You go into a city and people would say, I don't want Uber to be, I don't want it to be a taxi company. I want it to be Uber. I want it to work the way it is. I don't want to pay all these extra fees. And so they very quickly built up sort of natural lobbying group and they, they were able to get political capture because of that. And the same thing can happen with Bitcoin as well. If you have wide enough ownership, uh, especially ownership among people in power, people who um, have, uh, you know, a substantial amount of capital or people in Congress, there are a few members of Congress who have Bitcoin, but really what you want is a, a large fraction. And I think I read some paper where there's a theory that if you get to uh, somewhere between 30 to 40% of a population wanting something, even though they're not a majority, they have enough influence to push things through. A sort of tireless minority. And, and the legalization of marijuana is an, in, an example of this. It was illegal to use marijuana for a long time, but there was a, you know, a group that was very passionate about legalizing marijuana. And it eventually got to the point where some large enough fraction of the population thought, this is stupid. Why are we making this illegal? That they were able to get it over the line. And I think the question for me is, can we get to that state with Bitcoin before we see a state attack? I'm hopeful, uh, but I, I think that's an open question. Um, and we'll see. We'll see over the next decade what happens. All right, look, final question. And I'll put this to all three of you and start with you, Parker. What would you say for the doubters, the people who still doubt? Because it still happens, right? Um you know, I've had at least three times in the last week conversations on Twitter with people coming up with different reasons, centralization of mining in China, you know, it's too volatile, the, the, the similar same arguments, but rather than address those particular arguments, what would you say to those people, the people who are still doubting this? You know, well, I take the approach, and this was, I included this quote from Common Sense in one of my articles, but it's that... Um, time converts more people than reason or oh, along that, that kind of that thought process that to me, that just, it's not worth um, the energy to try to convince somebody. And that in my experience that something has to have piqued somebody's intellectual curiosity and they have to be interested in understanding why or how for them ever to potentially be able to, to see or understand Bitcoin is money. That, that, that inherently has to be, uh, a voluntary and, and forward process on, on, on whoever wants to know. So that if, if somebody's, you know, uh, loosely called a, you know, a denier or someone that doesn't want to see it, they're never going to see it. And, and that, you know, one of the things I tell people is that Bitcoin is basically the opposite of intuitive. It's, it's extremely counterintuitive. And then over time, as you stare at the problem long enough, something eventually clicks in, in your understanding of money and understanding of how Bitcoin and its finite scarcity can be that. And that is actually kind of over time becomes, you know, in, in most people's minds, order of magnitude better, that it goes from being the opposite of intuitive, you know, to intuitive to hyperintuitive 
the, just as a function of time. If, if you are staring at the problem in good faith, trying to understand it, and you have that own kind of curiosity that, that you know, kind of only an individual can control in themselves. If I like to think about it as if somebody doesn't want to know, it's like talking to a brick wall and it's not worth anybody's time. It's not worth theirs or yours. And that time will convert more than reason because more and more people, when they're looking at an objective set of facts, will come to that conclusion that Bitcoin is a better form of money. And at a certain point of time, their hands become forced. That, that right now we have the, the luxury and the benefit to be able to sit down, think about it. But as a, as, a con, as a consensus emerges, again, people can continue to use the dollar and the euro, but as more and more people decide to say, hey, let me, let me evaluate this, they're going to come to that conclusion that Bitcoin's a better form of money. And once we hit a tipping point, then those are just gonna, those, everyone else is just gonna be dragged along. Fantastic. Breed love, man. What about yourself? Do you have anything for the doubters? Yeah, I think if nothing else, 2020 reinforced the the truth that human beings are really poor at understanding exponential functions. I think there's actually a quote out there, the greatest inability of the human race is our inability to understand exponents. And so we had this thing, this COVID situation starting in Wuhan, People, especially here in the U.S., wrote it off. Oh, it's never going to happen here. And then two months later, we're all wearing masks. The world shut down, et cetera. So things that change exponentially can have huge outsized impact on the world very rapidly. And it's important to understand that Bitcoin is the first money we've ever had characterized by an exponential decay of new supply flow, right? It's new supply flow is cut in half every year. Um and just for a sense of scale on those numbers, I think we're around 300,000 new Bitcoin issued per year today in 2020. That number contracts by the year 2100 to 0.3 Bitcoin produced per year. So that's seven or eight orders of magnitude contraction. And the other thing I like to tell people is that the market is smarter than you might think that you are. And that's true for everyone. And this is the best performing asset in history. So like at what point do you get stopped out and say, all right, I need to have some exposure to this thing um, because it's, it's still going, right? It hasn't stopped. There's no, no indications that, of it abating anytime soon. So I think you need to have the real conversation with yourself about when you take it seriously. All right, VJ, take us out, man. Um, I say that money is the biggest market on earth by far. People like to talk about how big these tech companies like Apple and Google and uh, Amazon and Facebook are, but they're drops in the bucket compared to the size of the market for money. And in my opinion, Bitcoin is the most important innovation to money in a thousand years. So you're talking about an innovation, a disruption of the biggest market on earth by far. So I would just say, go get some. Don't, don't worry about figuring it out or going down the rabbit hole or anything like that. Go get some right now. And, you know, that might sound crazy. You don't understand it. Why would I invest in this thing? Anything, no matter how risky it is, can be put into a portfolio by just choosing the appropriate size. And maybe the comfort level you have is 1% of your portfolio or 0.1%. There is some number where you would think, it doesn't matter if it goes to zero, then my portfolio moves that much per day. So my advice is go get some, get a stake, because this is 
has the potential to be important. Even if you don't understand, you probably understand that the, the market for money is big and that disrupting it is, you know, potentially very valuable thing. So go get a stake. That will give you enough skin in the game to figure it out later on if that stake becomes large enough. Amazing. Listen, this has been amazing. Thanks, guys. Look, I owe you all a huge thanks. Um, you're, I, I, I picked the three of you to come together for this by design because you're my three favorite writers on the topic of Bitcoin. VJ, very early on your article, The Bullish Case for Bitcoin, uh, changed my entire thinking about Bitcoin as money and why it is the best form of money. Parker, your series on gradually and then suddenly made me realize like the impact this can have on everyone else. And Breedlove, I obviously only read some of your stuff recently, but I think of your work as like the magic mushrooms of Bitcoin writing <laughs> because it just fucking takes me into this new dimension. I'm like, what? What's going on here? But like, you're my three favorite writers. Uh, you all do an amazing job. And I couldn't make a show without people like you coming on. So look, a big thanks. Um, just just to uh, like uh, end, Vijay, tell people how to find you in your work. Uh, I my article um, the bullish case for Bitcoin is on uh, Medium, and uh, you can find me on Twitter real underscore vj on Twitter. And I'm, I'm mostly being a parent. I don't have. I wish I had time to do more long form articles. The last time we spoke, which I think was was it two years ago, I we talked about you owe me. I wanted to write the bearish case for Ethereum, yeah. and um, it's been very difficult to find time. I have three young kids, so. Uh, I most of my thoughts are on Twitter. There, if I if I have a, a longish thought, it appears in a Twitter thread. So so find me there. Yeah, I get it, man. I got two kids. I understand. Parker, how do people find you, man? Uh, yeah. Well, f- first, thanks for having me back on. Always enjoy it. Always. Uh, and hope that you get back to Austin sometime soon. But people can find me on Twitter, Parker a., at Parker A. Lewis. Um, I work at Unchained Capital. You can find me on our. I, uh, distribute all of my content on, on our blog, unchained-capital.com. And if anybody is looking for uh, better ways to secure their Bitcoin for the long term or need Bitcoin financial services, reach out. Breedlove, take us out, man. How do they find you? Uh, thanks, VJ and Parker. This was a lot of fun. And thanks, Peter, for having me again. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Breedlove22. That's my last name, B-R-E-E-D-L-O-V-E-2-2. Uh, and then all my writings are on Medium. Also, you can check out our website. I post a lot of the same things, parallaxdigital.io, P-A-R-A-L-L-A-X, digital.io. The 22, was that like your jersey number? Uh, I, it was like my lucky number. I don't really even know where it came from. I've had so it my might, whole life. thought it might be your football <laughs> jersey number. Well, listen, look, thank <laughs> you all. I'll share it all out in the show notes. Can't wait to get this out. I'm sure people are going to love it. Uh, take care, and uh, like, I hope to see you all in person at some point. Hopefully this coronavirus will end and we get back on the planes. Take care. VJ will share some uh, recipes soon. Okay. What did you think of that? Bit of a monster, right? That was a monster episode. Absolutely loved it. Even my engineer got back to me and said, you're Pete. I had to listen to that twice. Now, I love talking to all of these three guys, but having them on together was a real treat. And it's just another show that makes me really bullish on the future of Bitcoin. And I think it will be fascinating to see how a lot of this stuff starts to play out over the next few years. You know, will we get to the point where we have nation states and central banks using Bitcoin? If they don't, how will they reject it? Will we see some kind of money wars? I mean, it's really going to be fascinating to see. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. A massive thanks to Parker, Robert, and VJ for coming on. And if you've got any feedback, you know you can reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, really, at the moment, I'm just asking you to go on to iTunes and leave me a review. They're really helpful for the rankings. Look, if you think it deserves one star, 
well, go and give it, but obviously I'm not going to be your friend. I'm not going to send you a Christmas card. But if you also think it deserves five stars, please go and do it. It takes about two minutes and it really supports the show. Outside of that, have you checked out my other show, Defiance? We've got this really interesting series on right now about Ghislaine Maxwell. She was the former girlfriend of disgraced paedophile financier Jeffrey Epstein. We're getting into some we're getting into some quite detail on this, some really good research, really good investigative work has been done by my colleague Tom Pattinson. That's it, Defiance.news. Go and check that out. Outside of that, have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon.